You are listening to a podcast produced by the Center for West European Studies and the John Monet Center of Excellence at the University of Washington's Jackson School of International Studies. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and Sound. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu forward slash EU West Europe. Okay, so um, today I will be talking to you a little bit about populism and nationalism in this age of globalization and migration in Europe. Um, before we begin, a brief outline of what we're going to be talking about. So first, we will define populism and nationalism, and then I will talk about why do they arise? Why did populism happen in the past 10 years in, in the EU? And I will be talking about three crises in Europe, the Eurozone crisis, the refugee crisis, and Brexit. But I will not be going in deeply into Brexit because we'll talk that about later. Um, and then I will talk about the connection between these three crises triggering a fall in trust in institutions, which then triggered a rise in these populist parties. And then we will talk a little bit about how Eastern and Western EU uh, populist parties are different, which I hope answers your questions a little bit. Uh, and then I will be talking about two cases, a case of left-wing populism and a case of right-wing populism. So the left-wing one will be Greece, and the right-wing one will be Italy. Um, and then I had some slides on the uh, European Parliament elections, but since we talked a lot about that, if, even if we don't get to that, it's, it's fine. Hopefully, I, I won't take too long, but I'm afraid I will. OK, so um, as to the definitions, um, when talking about populism in this presentation, we will be referring to a political tendency distinguished by its anti-elite, authoritarian, and nationalist elements and rooted in economic insecurity and identity politics for the most part. Um, even though the most popular uh, definition in political science is the one given by Kasmuda, who is an expert in, in populism, and that basically says that the key tenet of populism is sees society as divided between the pure people on one side and the corrupt elites on the other side, and that politics should be seen as respecting popular sovereignty at any cost. Um, what's interesting about um, populism, and, 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 and Nico talked about it in, in his presenta presentation, is that it's usually combined with other ideologies. So they can be nationalism, socialism, liberalism, and it can be both left-wing and right-wing. And we will be talking about examples of this. And, and also populism is not necessarily, in the European context, it's not necessarily Eurosceptic, even though we often associate it with, with that. So the next question is, why populism? Why does populism arise? So usually there are two main, um, ideas of, like behind why populism arise, two main theories. One is the cultural backlash one, which basically says that there is a cultural backlash against progressive values such as multiculturalism and cosmopolitanism, and so people emphasize their national identity more. And the other one is that populism arises because of economic insecurity, especially from pressure stemming from globalization or technological progress or actually could be both. So we will not be seeing these as necessarily two alternatives, but we will see them as potentially being complementary. And as we move on, you will see how 
they actually, they're both likely to have, have played some roles. Okay, the next question we're gonna try to answer is why 10 years ago populist parties started to arise in Europe? Why did that happen? So there are three crises that happened in Europe in the past 10 years. The first one, which I will be talking a lot about because it's one of my research areas, uh, is the Eurozone crisis that started in 2009. The second crisis is the migrant crisis that started in 2015 as the, the, the war in Syria worsened. And the third crisis is Brexit, which started in 2016. And again, I will not be, be, be talking about that. Okay, so let's, let's start with the Eurozone crisis. So what's the, the, the triggering event? The triggering event, which was actually not the cause necessarily of the Eurozone crisis, was when in 2009, the Papandreou government in Greece is elected and they revealed that the previous government had lied about its public accounts for years. They had lied even for joining the European Union and said, um, sorry, the, the Eurozone. So they revealed to have lied about its public deficit for years, and so suddenly the, the markets panic. Nobody wants to hold Greece's debts anymore, and so Greece finally, suddenly finds itself unable to service its debt. And that's the beginning of the Eurozone crisis. But the Eurozone crisis was actually a result of many factors. One being structural problems and competitiveness differences <laughs> between the North and the South of the European Union, and I will talk about that. The other being, for certain countries, only fiscal misbehavior, like Greece and Italy. And then the third being the 2008 global financial crisis that had a, a huge effect. So it was actually like there were cumulative uh, causes, not just one. And the southern countries, so Portugal, Italy, Greece, and Spain, and Ireland, which was not in the south, but it's usually so this, this group is, is often called the pigs. So Portugal, Italy, Ireland, Greece. Unfortunate, but um, and they were especially hit, right, by by this crisis. And but why is that? And and now we will see why. And I think this is very very important to understand the rise in, in populism in Europe. Okay, so when the eurozone starts, it's the early two thousands. Okay, so the monetary union starts, and we have major macroeconomic differences between the north and the south. Okay. So we have two very different economic models. So we have the northern countries, uh, so we're talking about Germany, Belgium, the Netherlands, Austria, Finland. They're uh, characterized by export-led growth, um, which basically means that these countries have good wage coordination between trade unions and employers associations. They have very sophisticated vo uh, vocational training, and these vocational training schools provide a very highly skilled labor force to those firms. And those for firms are actually not always very competitive, but cooperative, especially in like research and development expenditure. So this makes them very competitive on the international uh, scene, and so they're export-led growth models. They rely very much on, on exports. On the other hand, you have Southern European countries that do not have very efficient wage coordination because you have usually very many trade unions competing for workers so and they're usually confrontational towards the other actors and not really cooperative and then you don't really have good vocational training schools that means that they actually compete with like low skilled with a low skilled labor force as opposed to a high skilled one which means you're not competing on quality you're usually competing on price 
which means that in order to remain competitive in these systems, you have to rely very much on competitive devaluations. So on basically artificially reducing the prices of your exports as opposed to your imports and your unit labor costs. So what happens once you join a monetary union, you cannot competitively devalue <coughs> your currency anymore, right? Because there is one monetary central bank. That, that, so, so, so basically, your only source of competitiveness is, is removed, right? Whereas for Northern Europe, um, that they do not rely on that as a model, they're actually, it's, it's a big advantage because now they can take advantage of the single market to, to export even more. So this means that there are significant problems. Of course, of course, this is not the only difference. The southern countries are also characterized by various problems, like very much higher corruption as opposed to the north, clientelistic behaviors, very high taxes. Um, so it's not just a matter of competitiveness. There are also more structural problems. But you can see from, from this, this that, that the monetary union could have been a recipe for a disaster, right? Because you have this, these two different sets of countries. And as long as everything is going well, it probably doesn't matter as much. But as soon as the crisis hits, then it's, it starts to matter. So what happens also when Southern Europe joins the Eurozone? Well, suddenly, as it often happens for some kind of like economic and political reforms, these countries suddenly become like very promising for investors. So basically, everybody wanted to invest in Southern Europe at that point, right? And we know that the interest rates on, on their government bonds went significantly down because those countries were, many of them were characterized by like bad economic management. So they used to have pretty high interest rates on their debt, so it was expensive for them to borrow. But suddenly they joined the Eurozone and the market, markets start to believe that, you know, that the richest countries, so Germany and the other countries would bail them out in case something went wrong. So their interest rates go down and this means there is an economic boom in these countries. Everybody wants to invest in them. So there is more confidence from investors which means there is lo low cost capital, okay? So these countries are flooded with capital, um, heavy borrowing to, to finance current consumption. This leads to an economic expansion in these countries, which then leads to a boom, housing market bubble, which probably sounds familiar. And then eventually something happens, which is the lemon collapse in the US. And suddenly investors panic and they get nervous, they start to reassess risks, and they start to realize that a lot of the, the money that they poured in, they want to get it out, right? Because they realize that a lot of the growth process of these southern countries were, was not really tied to economic fundamentals, but merely to the bubble. So the, this bubble bursts, um, these countries suddenly find themselves with, with no money, they find themselves unable to service their debt and their current deficits, and they cannot remember, they cannot devalue their currency to, to you know, kind of get out of the crisis that way. So they're stuck. And so this leads to economic and political distress, which we will be talking about. And this leads, again, the northern countries were the creditor countries because those were the countries that were lending tremendous amount of money to the south. While, while, while the southern countries are the debtor uh, countries, okay? So this creates a divide between these two groups, okay? Another interesting detail is that often you hear that this was a sovereign debt crisis, and it turned into a sovereign debt crisis 
but it was only actually the Greek, the Greek crisis and in part the Italian ones that were due to fiscal misbehavior. But in the other southern countries like Portugal, Spain, Ireland, it, it was initially not a public debt crisis, but it was a private debt uh, crisis. And then the government stepped in to save the banks, and so it became a public debt crisis. But like, for instance, Spain was running a budget surplus for years before this, this happened. So um, what were the solutions to these problems? Well, the solutions were that basically this, this well, we could call it this institution, the Troika, which was for, formed by the European Union, the International Monetary Fund, and the European Central Bank, basically gave the countries in, in trouble that couldn't service their debts anymore, uh, Greece, Portugal, and Ireland, uh, formal bailouts in exchange for passing austerity measures and structural reforms, okay? And the interesting thing in the, is that Spain and Italy were subject to some kind of a more implicit conditionality, so they, they never really signed memorandum of understandings with the Troika, so there were never official agreements with the Troika. Um, but uh, so it was interesting because the European Central Bank in 2011 sent letters to the Italian and Spanish governments saying that they would buy their bonds on the secondary market only conditional on them passing um, certain reforms. So it was some kind of like implicit conditionality. It was nothing official. But then both of the countries actually complied. Um, so what, what happened? This created a divide, right? between the creditor countries in the north, so the, the blue ones, you can see Finland, Germany. I put France in there, but France is kind of in the middle between the two because it was not really, its economic fundamentals were not really that good. Um, Austria, Belgium, Netherlands. Um, so this is the north, and then you have the debtor states in the south, okay? And so you have people in the south that are increasingly unhappy about what's happening. They blame the north. Um, they, they blame austerity for like failure to recover. Um, so this is the, f the first cause of the falling trust and then the rise of populism, the Eurozone crisis, which has like very significant and distant roots. So it's not just a result of the global financial crisis. Okay, and then the second crisis that we'll be talking about um, is the migration, also called refugee crisis. And this starts in, the, uh, in early 2015 as the war in Syria worsens. Uh, we, this means that as the war gets worse, an increasing number of asylum seekers actually gets to the shores of um, Italy and Greece for the most part. And these countries are unable to handle the sudden um, increase in the influx of migrants. So they ask the European Union to help because in, in, in 2004, According to the Treaty of Dublin that was signed by most of the states, actually uh, asylum seekers are supposed to be welcomed and like their, their application processed by the first country in which they step into. So this means that basically this was a big problem for Italy and Greece because they had to deal with, with this sudden influx of people. So in 2015, the European Union proposed a quota system according to which uh, refugees would be divided by country um, based on the population and the economic, the size of the economy. Um, but the problem is that some countries didn't agree to these, especially the Eastern European one and ones, and, and we will get to this. So the Eastern European ones, the bloc, so especially the Czech Republic, Slovakia, Hungary, Poland, and also Romania, 
they refused to sign this, this system, so basically they didn't get any refugees. Um, and this system, anyways, was in place for a couple of years, but it was not successful at all. Like, out of 120,000 refugees, they only uh, reallocated 20,000 about. And after two years, <coughs> they didn't do anything about it. Right now, they're trying to, to pass some kind of a more long-term solution, but uh, they haven't found an agreement yet. So what's happening is just that there are a bunch of like bilateral agreements between countries but they're totally voluntary and outside of the formal um, law system. So this, the migrant crisis, and this is interesting. So before you remember, the Eurozone crisis creates a divide between the North and the South. The migrant, cri migrant crisis creates a divide between East and West, okay? So Western countries are more willing to like, accept this quota system dividing refugees, um, whereas the Eastern Europe like, is really rejecting um, refugees. Um, and it's also interesting to take a look at how the number of asylum seekers in the EU changed over the years. So you can see 2015 and 2016, it's, there is a big spike. But, but then they start to, to go down. Um, and then we will see how um, later how populism is different between the West and, and, and the East. Okay, but these are two big crises that contributed to the rise in, in, in populism. But before we get to the rise in populism, um, the crisis had an immediate effect in, on public trust in institutions. Okay, so we know that citizens' trust is important for the legitimacy of institutions and for their survival. And there are several studies that right after the crisis uh, find that the economic crisis is a major factor that contributed to the fall in, in, in trust in, in public institutions in Europe. And so we know that it was not only the crisis itself, but it, it was also this EU IMF conditionality that put several fiscal constraints on certain states that contributed to this fall in trust. And this happened regardless of citizen choices at the polls, right? So we, we also we will see that in, in Greece. So regardless of which parties you voted for, you had to stick to that that agenda. Okay, so we see even the Greeks voted for Syriza, but in the end, um, I mean, their preferences were clearly not respected. Um, and also a lot of these studies, and this is interesting because it goes back to what we were saying before, show that illiberal cultural traits, so that th that cultural backlash we talked to, um, earlier, kind of amplified the adverse macroeconomic shocks. Um, and had an effect on trusting institutions. So they, they kind of had an interactive effect. So probably the more illiberal culturally you are, and then if you are also hit by the um, economic crisis in a significant way, you're much more likely to experience a, a fall in, 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 in trusting institutions. And um, so I, I've actually worked on this topic, and so this is, this is like a statistical model that, that I ran. And here I look at the effects of the crisis on trust in national institutions now, and then we will see on European institutions. And we can see, so we have the crisis here, 2008, we kind of marks the beginning of, and then on the horizontal axis we have years from 2002 to 2012 only, that's all the data I had. And then on the vertical axis you see the uh, trust in the uh, national parliament, which goes from zero to 10. 
And you can see, so the red line is south, Southern Europe and the blue line is Northern Europe. And you can see that trust in national parliaments is kind of declining in both, but you can see a huge dip for Southern Europe right after the crisis. So the, it, it looks like the countries that were hit worse uh, by the crisis and that had to go through austerity and structural reforms saw a much more significant fall in, tr in trust in, in national parliaments, but also in the European Parliament. And this is even more interesting but because as you can see, before the crisis, southern countries actually had much higher levels of trust for the EU than northern countries. And then the trend reverses after the crisis. So the southern countries experience such a fall in trust that they drop below northern Europe. Um, I don't have the most recent data, but I know that the fall is kind of like stopped and it's, it's, it's recovering a little bit because most of the countries in the south are actually finally recovering from the crisis. Um, can you give me some idea of, when you talk about austerity and structural reforms, what that means in English, how I can translate that to a, a child and yeah, a kid's and, language? Yeah. So, how does it affect the life of a person on the ground so, in one of these countries? Yeah, so basically it's usually a, an increase in taxes or a huge cut in public expenditure. Okay, so basically it's it means- Talk about schools, talk about hospitals, exactly. talk about jobs. Can you give me some like, personal experience in Italy or in, in Greece, how that affected people's lives? Yeah, so I'm gonna be talking about that, but so in Italy, so the interesting thing is that I think Italy is probably the country that did the least, but for instance, one, one, one big reform was increasing the retirement age from like about 58 to 67, which in, all of a sudden it's, it's, it's a big change because it's oh suddenly 10 years. I mean, and, and the problem is not this change. The problem is that for many years before that, nothing was changed. And so it's, we had this unsustainable system in which basically Italy was granting pensions that were about 80% of your previous wage, regardless of the contributions you paid. So you could have paid nothing, you still were getting 80% of At your- At age 58. Yes. And, so, and often much before that, because we had a lot of pre-retirement plans. So sometimes you could retire at like 50, 51. And teachers could actually, up until the, ni the 90s, they could retire, women, teacher could retire at 39. <laughs> I'm, I'm not kidding. So, so you understand that that, 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 was, that was a big change, right? Um, so suddenly it's like 10 years more. Um, a lot of like cuts in like public uh, services, um, but again, not so much in Italy, but I think more in other countries, like for instance, Greece. So suddenly like you fire, if think about the fact that in ma many of these countries, like 50% of the workforce is like public employees, suddenly tomorrow we decide to fire like 10% of the workforce. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's huge. Um, and many other, and then increases in taxes. Okay, so the, the, the usually you already pay like about 50% of your wage in taxes, so if, if you increase them, it's, it, it becomes unsustainable. So it's these types of, of measures. Um, and also making, for instance, in the labor market, in a lot of countries, and I'll, I'll be talking about Italy, it was very, very hard to fire anyone, and suddenly they changed the law and it became very easy. So it's not so much as the, the, the law in itself, but it's the sudden change in like, from a system into another, that, that's kind of, critical, but when, when, when I talk about Greece and Italy, it will become clearer um, what these measures were. Does that kind of yeah, answer?
Okay. So, um, okay, but why are we talking about the, the fall in trust? Well, because there is actually a, a connection between declining trust in institutions and the rise of populist and nationalist parties, okay? So many studies find that people who have higher distrust for European integration and political institution are much more likely to vote for a populist party, either right wing or left wing. And we know also, and this goes back to the graphs I showed you before, that so the Eurozone party is considered a key factor in the rise of populist parties along the North and South Divide, uh, whereas the migration uh, um, crisis has been identified as a key factor affecting the rise of populist parties in the post-communist states of Eastern Europe. So again, we, we've talked about Fidesz in, in Hungary and law and justice in Poland, and then we'll talk about the um, Syriza in, in Greece uh, in a little bit, and the Five Star Movement and the League in, in Italy. Um, Okay, and then what's also interesting about these uh, populist parties is that they're actually very different uh, between the East and the West. So in, in the uh, Eastern countries, so the Visegrad countries, Hungary, Poland, Slovakia, and Czech Republic, it's actually the populist rhetoric actually comes from the very center of the political space. So, so from the mainstream parties that capitalized on this rise in xenophobic and racist attitudes Whereas in Western Europe, they're actually at the ex extremes. They're usually new party parties or other parties that kind of decided to capitalize on this. Like the Northern League in Italy, for instance, was a regionalist party, party initially that wanted to split Italy between the North and the South. And then once they saw this rise in these nationalist sentiments against refugees and migrants, they kind of capitalized on that and they became the League. They removed the Northern from their names and now they're getting votes from the same people in the south that they were insulting for 20 years when they said that Africa began at Rome and now suddenly you, you, you get votes from people in the south too. Okay, so now let's get to the two cases so we will see a little bit more in depth what happened in two of these countries. Um, so the first one is Greece. So we start from like a picture of the country that um, is actually a country with a lot of structural problems. Again, we have a very large public expenditure which is financed with debt, basically. A lot of corruption, large shadow economy, a lot of clientelism, so basically a lot of jobs. You, 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 you're more likely to get a job if you know somebody rather than if, if you're qualified. Excessive regulations, very close markets. Um, so this is like the scenario, the, the pre-crisis scenario. And then, as I mentioned before, the crisis hits, and this new socialist government is elected, and they suddenly reveal that the previous government had lied for a long time about the public accounts, and that the budget deficit is actually, in that year, going to exceed 15% which is of GDP, which is five times the EU limit of 3%. Um, <coughs> so financial markets start to panic. They start to reassess the sovereign credit risks. So basically, they find themselves unable to service their debt, okay? They, they find themselves unable to place their debt on the international markets. And what this means is that if, so basically the, the interest rates on their debt keep increasing so high that if you get to a point where nobody is willing to buy debt anymore, it means you're gonna have to default on your debt. And it means that basically you're gonna stop paying pensions and public salaries and, and all of these things. So, I mean, it's, it's something that it's, it's huge. So what happens is that even though the European Union has a no bailout clause, 
So apparently the European Union has this clause according to which no country can bail out another country. They still find, way, find ways to get around that. And, they, um, and Greece entered bailouts from the Troika, which we said is made out of the EU, the IMF, and the European Central Bank. And they get this money in exchange, conditional on austerity measures. And we'll talk a little bit more about these and structural reforms. Okay, so basically you should cut your public expenditure and increase your taxes. Um, okay. Okay. What happens though is that people are mad. Okay. Um, growth is not picking up. Um, unemployment is incredibly high. It's almost 50%. So people are mad and they elect Alexis Tsipras uh, from the, the left-wing party, Syriza and he was elected on an anti-austerity platform, okay? So basically he says, I'm actually going to renegotiate the bailout with the European Union, we'll stop the austerity, we will get debt relief, um, and then we'll see how nothing of this happens. And basically what's starting to happen is that he, he decides to renegotiate the terms, so Europe st stops the payment, until they renegotiate these terms. But then suddenly Tsipras said, I'm gonna actually ask people, so I'm gonna call for a referendum and ask people in Greece whether they want to renegotiate this, the terms of these bailouts or not. And this was actually a dangerous precedent because it's basically saying, as long as people decide to repudiate the debt, then it's fine to repudiate a country's debt. So he, he calls this referendum and what I will argue is that he played a game of chicken with, um, well, here we say Germany, but it's actually the rest of the um, EU. And I will show you a video to show you what the game of chicken is and why he engaged in, in a game of chicken. So I don't know why the link is not there. It's probably the old version of the, but I'll, I'll find it. Have you seen, has any of you seen Footloose, the movie? Oh, yeah. yeah, so that's, that's where. So you will, you will wonder why, but. Um. Cheersing boomerang on your trip. Why the f are you even on vacation? So, to just to explain for those of you who have not seen it, so basically one of these guys challenges the other guy to a game of chicken with his two tractors over a girl. So, they're going one towards the other. So think of them as one being Germany and the other being Greece. Yeah. 
you're basically going one against the other and the only outcome you want to avoid is the crash, right? Because you both lose. And in the European context, the, the, the crash is Brexit, so Greece leaving the European Union. Nobody wants that, neither Greece nor Germany. So the best outcome is for one person to go straight and the chicken to swerve. Like nobody wants to swerve but these guys shoelaces get actually stuck and he cannot jump off the tractor so he's signaling to the other party that he's not going to swerve he can't swerve so that the other party is So he wins and so I guess by now you know who Germany is and 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 who Greece is so students love that though like to understand <laughs> the, the game of chicken so in the end so at the beginning why does you probably wonder why did Cyprus think that he could win the game of chicken against Germany. Well, I'm saying Germany, but it's actually the rest of Europe because everybody was the other side. It, it's just to make it easier. So if both went straight and, and if they crashed, the outcome would have been Brexit. So Greece leaving the European Union, because if you leave the Euro right now for the way that the treaties are written, you have to leave the European Union. And nobody wanted that, okay? So Germany didn't want that precedent and you know, other countries, what if Greece, left the euro and prospered, which was very unlikely, but what if it happened and other, it, it could kind of act as a domino, right? And then, I mean, even from a more ideal point of view, it's like it would be the end of a project that had lasted for years. So both won this, so Greece wants this and Germany wants this. What happens is that initially Tsipras thought he could have had a winning situation because Greece, when he was elected, was actually doing a little better than expected. They were running a fiscal surplus, which meant that they were getting more revenues than they were spending, which was probably the first time in, in 100 years. And so that meant that if they had a short-term strategy, at least they had a, a threat of exit, right? They could tell the EU, well, we can leave the euro, and we're going to have some money, at least for a while. Um, and we're not gonna have to rely on the EU or on international financial markets, at least for a short time of period. So they kind of had a, a threat of exit. So at first he thought that it was possible to play this game of chicken with, with the rest of Europe. But then what happened once immediately after he called the referendum was that everybody freaked out. So capital controls were instituted, banks were closed for three weeks. So people, there were cash limits on how much money you could actually withdraw and the Greek people kept repeating that as much as they didn't want any more austerity they did not want to leave the euro and this actually few months 
triggered a self-inflicted re recession, a new, newly self-inflicted recession in Greece. And then he basically spent, Tsipras spent the rest of his term cleaning up his own messes. So he, he really made like a huge mistake. And eventually what he got was even worse of like the terms that he had called the referendum on. So he got, still got austerity. He basically got no debt relief and he had to implement a worse deal than the one over which he had called the referendum. So um, what happened is that a few months ago, uh, we witnessed the end of the Greece, of Greece's uh, populist experiment. So Greece was the first country entering, trying the populist experiment, and it was also the first one to exit it. So in May 2009, with the European Parliament elections, um, um, Tsipras party, um, got it, was defeated, so he called the general elections, and he lost to New Democracy, which is the center right, which was actually um, quite unexpected. I mean, it was one of the mainstream parties that was the cause of many of the problems of the country. But um, I guess like Tsipras made a lot of promises, and it's, this is true for a lot of populist leaders. And eventually, he he couldn't keep any. And right now, I mean, Greece is recovering. The debt is still very high. It's like 100. 81% of GDP, there are still economic challenges, um, but uh, things might, might change with um, Mitsotakis and, and, and the new government. So on the one hand, we see a country that like experienced its wor worst recession is in, its, in its history, uh, trying the populist experiment and leaving it uh, soon after. On the, other con on the other side, you have Italy, which is a very interesting case because Italy actually started its populist experiment before anyone else, before the crisis, before there was even any problems. It was 1994 when Silvio Berlusconi was um, first elected. So he, he is this self-made billionaire who promised to sweep away a rotten political class and bring his business uh, skills to running the nation. He probably reminds you of someone. Mm -hmm. Um, and he claimed to be the authentic voice of the ordinary people that had to struggle with high taxes and bureaucracy. Um, he was reelected for three terms, so we stuck with this guy for 20 years. Um, and he's still not out of the scene. So, but I never thought we would get to the point where we would actually hope that he he came back, considering that what we have now is it's even worse. So I never thought we would get to this, but he's a member of the European Parliament. Yes, he is. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Italy, actually, on the one hand, it's an interesting case because it, 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 it tried populism way before anyone else was even talking about populism, right? Um, the problem with this 20 years of Berlusconi is that he was very busy in passing laws to basically spare himself from judicial proceedings. So a lot of, like, it changed the justice system. He called ju ju um, judges communists, so all the judges in Italy, according to him, were communists, and trying to, to go after him. The problem is that in those years, the country needed, badly needed reforms to, to cope with globalization and technological challenges, and he didn't pass any of those. So basically, the country was very, very vulnerable to external shocks, because it was not fit for like, being in the 21st century. And as I told you, some of those examples uh, of those laws um, uh, speak right to that, right? The fact that, for instance, firms could not fire, fire anyone at all um, meant that there were nobody hired anyone because they were afraid that if they did, 
that would be a problem. And then it's a country that it's also run by a lot of like small and medium-sized enterprises that do not really innovate. And these enterprises never get bigger because the bigger ones are much more regulated than the, the small ones. And then you have a lot of corruption. You have a very low-skilled um, workforce. Um, I mean, there are a lot of problems that were not dealt with. So what happens is that Italy was really, really vulnerable to external shocks. And what happens in 2008 is the global financial crisis. And when that happens, uh, Italy is also, also had one of the biggest uh, public debts in the world, uh, 130% of, of GDP. And it also hadn't grown for over 20 years, basically hadn't experienced any economic growth for the past 20 years. No policy changes. This means that investors start to freak out in the midst of the crisis and start to think, Are, is this country going to be able to repay its debt? So there is a huge press pressure on Italy from financial markets and from the European Union. And Basically, Italy receives this letter, as I told you, in 2011, asking from the European Central Bank, saying, if you pass these uh, reforms, we will buy your government bonds on the secondary market. And Berlusconi doesn't pass anything, especially because also his, his own um, members of parliament do not want to pay the political cost of passing these reforms that, as I told you, are very costly. Basically, they are political suicide. So eventually, he, he resigns. And uh, an economics professor is appointed, Mario Monti, as head of the technocratic government in November of 2011. So um, I had experience with people in this government because one of the ministers was one of my professors, and I, I worked for her. And she's the one that passed this uh, pension reform that I told you about, in which she had to increase the retirement age. Um, and she's still the subject of like, like a lot of death threats for, for passing that. But so the, the technocratic government, what had to do, it, they had to pass that pension reform in 20 days. And it, it's, it's no joke to say that probably that reform saved the euro. Because that's, after that then came the famous, that you probably remember, whatever it takes, speech of Mario Draghi in 2012. The European Central Bank, um, central banker Mario Draghi said, when the euro was actually under pressure from financial markets, it seemed like, the end was near again. He says, I will do whatever it takes to save the, the euro. And believe me, it will be enough. And I mean, we can probably say that it, it was enough. But so um, the technocratic government tried to pass a lot of reforms. However, as soon as the threat of urgency was gone, which was the first few months, they had problems. They had to compromise on the labor market reform. And then they tried to liberalize services a little more. Um, the service sector, and they failed on that. Um, what's interesting about Italy is that after the technocratic government, they elected a mainstream party and not a populist party. So they elected the center left. I put one of the prime ministers because they had like four in that period. Uh, Matteo Renzi was probably the most famous one. He passed a very bold um, labor market reform um, that again made it basically easier to fire people, but also made it easier to hire them and also uh, introduced an unemployment benefit uh, scheme that was much more um, open, um, like with wider access. However, once growth doesn't pick up, uh, he's losing votes. So he kind of shifts back to re like distributive politics that is very typical of Italian politics, which is basically he started giving 80 euros to certain groups, like interest groups, like each month. 
um, he started to decrease the retirement age again to, to make pensioners happy because there are a huge chunk of the voters. Um, eventually, growth continues not to pick up, and what happens is that Italy shifts back to populism, kind of on a late tide compared to the other EU countries. Uh, so in 2018, Italy elects this right-wing coalition, the populist coalition of so on the right, that's Matteo Salvini, the leader of the League, La Lega. Um, and on the left side is uh, Luigi Di Maio, who is the leader of the Five Star Movement. Two different parties, but they kind of have similar agendas. So both want to reintroduce early retirement so that people can go back to retire, uh, retiring at 50. They both want to deport migrants, institute a guaranteed minimum income, but they want to pay with it with tax cuts, which seems a little bit impossible. And then they're both Eurosceptic. Um, now, and this is just what happened last week, so that's, what happens is that Salvini now reached 38% of approvals, whereas the Five Star Movement kind of disappeared. So Salvini pulled the plug on the coalition government and says he wants to go uh, and vote soon, which means, and this is even more scary, that, that's what we were talking about earlier, for, for the future of the euro, because Salvini has been famous for being against eurozone membership. And now, finally, it faces its moment of truth, right? Because he, he has kind of dodged the bullet up to this point uh, and kind of always blaming the other party in the coalition for any economic decision. Now, if he's actually elected, he's going to have to uh, answer that question. And, um, and I mean, it's, it's kind of concerning, uh, I think, for the future of the European Union because Italy is one of its oldest members. and it's a really big country, it's the, the, the third economy, so if, if Italy does leave the Eurozone, it, it might well be the end of the whole experiment. So if I could pause you there yeah. for a minute, what are, uh, what are some checks on, uh, on his group? In other words, is the Italian parliament able to uh, put a check on the movement like that? Would uh, something like that, would it have to be a referendum to the people, uh, you know? How would that work? So it wouldn't necessarily have to be a referendum. He would probably make it a referendum. So right now, a majority of Italians do not want to leave the euro. Sure. But the problem is that he hasn't really expressed any opinion, like clear opinions about it since he joined the government. So the, the, okay. the big concern is that if once he says, I'm against the euro, a lot of people are going to be on board. Yeah. So we might cross that 50%. Can you speak, I'm sorry, can you speak to the, ge the geography of uh, Italy? What I'm asking you is, uh, does he enjoy more support in the north or in the south? Uh, the feelings among Italians about the EU, more popular in the north than in the south? Can you speak to that? Definitely in the north. So as I was mentioning before, this party's name used to be Northern League. Oh. So it was a party that wanted to split the productive north from the unproductive south. Mm -hmm. And then once refugees came in, or at least this idea that they were coming in, he kind of capitalized on this newly rising nationalist sentiment. And so he united Italy against the external threat of migrants and, and refugees. And so suddenly from campaigning against the South and saying that Italy had to be cut into two, I mean, they were famous for saying that Africa began at Rome. Um, now he's actually gaining votes also in the South. Um, from probably like unhappy people about how things are going that kind of find it easier to blame everyone else than um, their own country. But yeah, the concerning thing is that initially he only had, but in the North he has like 60% basically of, of the support um, and probably 20 from the South. 
Is there a level of white supremacy in this guy's work in the league? I mean, a little bit. Uh, I mean, it's initially the league was an ethnic-based party, uh, so uh, there was. Yeah, no, this idea that, that this, this region called Padania existed, which, which doesn't really exist. And it was almost like an ethnic thing that these people descended from the Celts. Is that right, the Celts? Um, and then it became more regionalist, so it was more about separating the North and the South, but merely based on like economic arguments. And now it became a nationalist thing. But like, yeah, they're incredibly xenophobic and racist and... Um, I think dangerous, but um, he has to. He had to moderate his language a lot once he became, once he got into the government. But I mean, we all know what he said up until a few years ago. So mm, no one thinks he, he changed. Um, but yeah, I think. I mean, to conclude, I think this is the biggest threat today for the European Union because going back, and I'm not going to talk again about the elections. I just wanted to show you this. Which, oh no, the, the flags are not showing. So, um, well, that's sad. So, um, well, I had flags instead of the names of the countries. But anyways, just to, to show you why I think that Italy is the biggest threat uh, to the survival of the European Union and not so much the other countries, is that this, this shows the change in Eurosceptic seats in the European Parliament from, from 2014 to 2019. And the net change has been uh, plus, 20 uh, plus 20 seats, right? But if you look at these, what it shows is that actually this increase is entirely driven by Italy, because Italy experienced an increase of 25 seats in, in Eurosceptic um, parties, but all of the other countries together experienced a net negative change in, in Eurosceptic uh, seats, so minus five. So a lot of the Eurosceptic wave, it's, it's actually just Italy coming in late into the 2014. Is that to the EU Parliament? Or yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and those are mostly all league and five-star movement seats. But, um, so, yes. I don't know that this is per se a question for you, but just it seems like something worth being on the table to think about is how many of these countries we're talking about in the Western Hemisphere, Eastern Europe, and actually in Latin America have been under dictatorships at a certain point in time in the 20th century. So I was thinking of, of the, the quote-unquote pigs you mentioned. Portugal, Greece, and Spain all had military dictatorships. Mm -hmm. um, the countries in Latin America have a history of that. And then we have what happened in Eastern Europe. And so, in, in kind of, over, when you think longer term history versus shorter term, between that and the preceding monarchies, you realize that the time span of democracy, relative experience with democracy is very like short. Yeah, right. absolutely. And yeah. I think since, since humans tend to have patterns of memory and pass down ways of patterning existence, when then we have the technology coming in with with the ramifications that has for how communication happens. Part of what we're really seeing is also like really interesting, challenging aspects of human behavior patterns that fall into these situations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's a great point. 
Um, I also think one other like speculative explanation for why Italy's like kind of seems to be leading this is that I believe that like the other pigs, which is the unfortunate name, uh, really did pass those structural reforms and really did go through those like painful austerity measures and are now going back to growth, especially if you see Spain, Ireland, Portugal, they're really recovering. Uh, but Italy, I think for the fact that it's so big and to some extent it's too big to fail, uh, my idea is that they never really faced the consequences of a lot of the choices they made over the years and they did not really go through the same harsh measures that other countries did. And I think the fact that they never really reached um, like bottom um, explains why um, people are still unhappy about the European Union and about like blaming Germany and blaming everyone else rather than looking. Is there any evidence of Russian influence in these, in these elections? Yeah, actually there just came out um, that there was Russian influence in the Italian elections and Salvini was involved and no one cared. Yeah, but unfortunately, I mean, people didn't seem to be affected by that. I mean, even if you think about, I mean, you probably don't know uh, maybe a lot about Berlusconi, but Berlusconi was involved with the mafia and the art proofs, and he, he only got away with that because of the statute of limitations. And regardless of that, people continued voting for him for 20 years. So um, I don't think there's going to be anything that. Yeah. Yeah, that's it.